Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our Old Testament reading this morning and Psalm and, and text for the sermon is Psalm 1. And then our New Testament reading will be found in, in Matthew chapter 5. So if you turn to Psalm 1, we'll read the Old Testament passage first, and then uh, to Matthew 5, and following our New Testament reading, we'll return to Psalm 1 for the sermon. So hear the word of the Lord from the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then our New Testament reading from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the, the reading and the hearing of your word. It is your very word. The word is God-breathed. It comes from your mouth to our ears. And Father, because we belong to you, we receive it and we believe it and we, we submit ourselves to your instruction. We're fed by it. We delight in your word. Lord, cause this word that has been read and heard to, to be firmly rooted in our hearts and to bear fruit in our lives. And now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word, which you have sanctioned, which you have ordered in your worship, and you have called man, you gift to the proclamation of your word, and you set them aside by, 
by the laying on of hands of the presbytery in ordination. And you grant an authority and a power and the presence of your spirit upon your men, your servants, as they proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, your servant now humbly stands before you and the congregation and and declares openly his utter need for that strength. Lord, grant that unction for your name's sake, for your glory, and for the edification of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wondered where to go next. Uh, Last time I was here was, of course, on Easter Sunday, and we took a little divergent path in order to look at the feast of the Lord in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 23, and then to look specifically how Jesus fulfills those feasts with some focus upon the Feast of First Fruits, because that was the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We see how the Old Covenant anticipates Christ and how he fulfills it. But the time before that that I was here, we finished our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. So where do I go next? And not being certain how many more Sundays I'm going to have before you coming on a regular basis, I thought what I would do is return to something that I truly love, and that is that small canon within the whole canon of Scripture, the Psalter, which summarizes the Old Covenant uh, revelation of God in anticipation of the coming of the, of, of the new, and at least for a series of times until we see what the Lord's going to be doing before us, uh, to pick and choose and to work our way through, um, through the Psalms or portions of, of, of the Psalms. Uh, you know that I love them. You've heard me proclaim them before, and so we're going to come back to do that. Well, I heard this morning that I may have already preached someone here in the very beginning. We first began began the work. I do know that I preached someone twice at Reformation. So it's the possibility that there are some seated here now that this will be the fourth time they've heard me preach this particular psalm. I preached it and then revisited it at Reformation. And if I did, I didn't see that in my records, but if I did preach it here, I'm not too worried about that. There are people who were not who are here today who were not here then. And also, uh, for those who were here then, it's amazing how well they remember certain things, but there's always the reason uh, to revisit. <clears throat> One of the things that I'd love to talk about with the Psalms and I'm actually going to start teaching a course on June the 23rd. It's Right now it's 6 to 10. I think it's actually going to be 6.30 to about 10 on Thursday nights. Not sure whether we're going to be offering it streamed online by Zoom. I hope so. If anyone would like to, uh, uh, you know, to observe the course, I'm going to be teaching at Grand Bible College on the flow and the arrangement of the Psalms and the Psalter. It'll be five weeks of lecture, and then there are papers and a final exam for those who want to do it for credit. Um, And if it is going to be online, if we're able to make that arrangement, 
then I will let you guys know. And if anybody wants to tune in, you can do that. There are lengthy lectures when you begin at 6 and end at 10, 10-ish, or 6.30 and end at 10 to 10.30-ish. Um, but five consecutive weeks, and I love teaching this course. It's one of my favorite ones that I teach at the college. <clears throat> but that course really was born after... Uh, reading a book written by Dr. O. Palmer Robertson that's entitled The Flow of the Psalms. And that's the textbook for the course. And when I read Dr. Robertson's book, I think it was back in 2014, I believe that's correct. or two th- I think that's correct. When it was first released, when I read his book, it was like my eyes were opened. Uh, now, now, Pete had the opportunity to sit under Dr. Robertson when he was at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was a professor when you were there. And uh, by the time I arrived, much later than when Pete finished at RTS, um, Dr. Robertson had moved on to Westminster Seminary. I heard him when he came and preached at, at chapel uh, when there. But, but a brilliant biblical theologian who is now in his mid-80s, uh, and is still going strong, the last that I heard. But he, he, he has seen the beauty of the arrangement of the Psalms and, and the Psalter. And I want to begin this morning by pointing out one particular thing that he discovered. And when I saw it, it was just like, like a, light, a light went on. There are three times in the Psalms at three very specific places in the Psalter where there's a coupling, a unique coupling of psalms in terms of theme or subject matter. One of the psalms is a Torah psalm, and then one right next to it is a Messianic psalm. Now, what do I mean by a Torah psalm? A law psalm, one that exalts the law of God or the testimonies of God or the teachings of God. And then the second psalm, a messianic psalm or a Christ psalm, is specifically about Messiah himself. Of course, the Psalter has many messianic psalms. But you find this coupling of law and Messiah in three strategic places. The first is Psalm 1 and 2. The second is Psalm 18 and 19. And the third is Psalm 118 and 119. Psalms 1 and 2, of course, at the very beginning of the Psalter. 18 and 19 divide book 1, which is Psalms 1 to 41, in the middle. These two are placed right in the middle of book 1, and therefore divide that long book of 41 Psalms into two equal parts. And then 118 and 119 come between the Hallelujah Psalms that begin with 111 and end with 117, and the songs of ascents that the people of God sang while going up to Jerusalem to worship God that begin with 120 and end with 134. 118 is a Messianic Psalm. 119 is the law psalm, the Torah psalm of all law psalms and Torah psalms. What is it? 172, 176, whatever, verses in that one psalm. But you have this coupling of law and gospel. And that's one way of looking at the message of the Bible is law and gospel. One other thing that I want to say about about the structure before I come to this psalm itself 
that, that, that I find interesting, and I don't know that I have a definitive answer. In this case, Psalm 1 is the Torah psalm followed by the Messianic psalm, Psalm 2. 18 is the Messianic psalm followed by the law psalm, 19. 118 is the Messianic psalm followed by the law psalm, 119. When I first learned of this, about this coupling, I, uh, shortly after that I was teaching at a conference at Alice Lloyd College in Kentucky. And I was teaching this subject matter at that conference. And I raised that question uh, to the students that were gathered for the conference. I raised that question, why is it law, gospel, and then gospel, law, gospel, law? And I said, my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I'd, like to have, I'd like to know the answer to that question. And, and Jay Bennett, who's our pastor in our church in Neon, and also the one that was putting on this particular conference at the college, Jay Bennett made a suggestion off the top of his head, but it rings true to me. Whether it was in the mind of the one who compiled the Psalter or not, I don't know. And he said, it could have to do with the uses of the law. Because I want to spend some time here talking about the law and the gospel and how they relate. And when we think about the law of God, we think of the three categories of law, the moral law of God, the ceremonial laws in the Old Covenant, and then the civil or judicial laws. It's three categories of law that you find in, in the Pentateuch. But there are also three uses of the law. The first use of the law, as we say in theology, is it demonstrates the righteous character of God. This is who God is. And therefore, this is how you made in His image must be. He is righteous. You must be righteous. And so the first use of the law is to show you His righteous character. And then as you, a fallen sinner, see His righteous character in His law, Paul says the law becomes a tutor that says, you need a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. And so the law reveals the righteous character of God. It reveals your unrighteousness and your sin and your need. And it reveals your need for a Savior. And then it points you to that Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place. That's the first use of the law. It's how you come to faith in Christ Jesus. The second use of the law is how the law, the moral law of God, then becomes a pattern for how governments should be run. What is, what is to be the morality, the moral ethical base for the civil government? Well, it's the law of God is revealed in the, in, in, in the Word of God. That's the second use of the law. But then there's the third use. The third use is, now that you're a Christian, now that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, how shall you live to honor him? That very same law that showed you your brokenness now shows you how to walk in righteousness. And this is when we read in the law about the law being sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb and, and the laws of God to be more desired than gold, much fine gold. This is how the regenerate heart sees the law of God, you see. 
not in perfection. We fall short. That's why we have reading of the law. It's why we have a confession of sin. It's why we have an assurance of pardon in our liturgy. The law is doing its work. But here's something important to recognize. The law at Sinai was given to a redeemed people. So the emphasis is upon the third use of the law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a people redeemed through blood, brought to Sinai, that's given the law of God. That's an important emphasis and something that we need to see. And so the thrust then comes upon that third use of the law. How then shall we live? Now, we come to Paul's writings and we see that sometimes Paul puts law and gospel in opposition to each other. Sometimes in very stark terms. You have law and you have gospel. You're under law or you're under gospel. And you might come to a conclusion when you read that, that Jesus has come, now law is gone. Jesus has come. There's no place for law anymore. In theology, that's called antinomianism. It's not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. No, law and gospel are at odds only in one way. It's a significant way. It's when you use the law of God to try to justify yourself before a holy God or to contribute to your justification. Well, at least I did this and this and this and this right. No, the law can only condemn you because you've broken it. Law and gospel are at odds when law, as a covenant of works, we seek to use it to pat ourselves on the back and to present ourselves as somehow acceptable before God based in our own obedience. And Paul says no. He calls it anathema. That's the heresy of the Judaizers that he addresses in many of his letters, and especially the letter to the Galatians. It's the old heresy of the Pharisees before in Judaism. No, you're justified by grace through faith alone and not by works. You cannot boast in your own works before God. But, Understanding that and understanding the third use of the law. Okay, now that I'm justified solely by grace through faith alone. And I'm justified solely based upon Christ's righteousness imputed to me. Not in my own standing. When God sees me, he sees the righteousness of his son. And he loves his son in his righteousness. And says, well done my good and faithful servant. He sees me clothed in his righteousness and he says, I love you, well done, my good and faithful servant. We understand our justification is on the basis of the work of Christ alone and not our own. Then joyfully, okay, how do I please and honor this God? It's the very same law. Now give me the grace to be obedient and to keep your law in order to glorify your name. Law and gospel 
come together beautifully when understood rightly. And it's important for us to recognize that. Now, we're going to come to Psalm 1. And next time, Lord willing, we'll do Psalm 2. And if I preach that already, you'll get to hear it again. And that will be okay. But then I've got 150 to pick from. Actually, 148 then to pick from. And maybe can pick some that I've not expounded uh, for you before. But gospel, law is never without gospel. And gospel is never without law in the scriptures. They meet beautifully. We see that in this Torah psalm. And I want to demonstrate that to you. And Jake remembers it well because he said it (laughs) after Sunday school in light of seeing what the sermon was going to be this morning. Blessed is the man. This is the man who's blessed of God. This is what we call an oracle of weal, an oracle of blessing. You want to be blessed by God, this is how you live. Okay? The oracle of woe is the curse. This is the oracle of will. It's why I read the Beatitudes. They are oracles of blessing. Okay, here's another one in the Old Covenant. Blessed is the man, or you could say woman or child, everybody's included in this, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The blessed man is the man who doesn't do these things. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. I may have used this illustrated before. I heard it from another preacher. I can't remember which one it was who did it, but I thought it beautifully shows this. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. What are you doing if you're walking down the street and there are some people that are gathered? You can just tell they're up to no good. There's something that's going on here. It's their posture. It's the way they're laughing. There's something that's unrighteous that's taking place. Do you walk on by? Or do you walk by and you listen just for a moment and then, ooh, and then hurry on? But what happens the next time? Maybe you come by the next day. And in this time, you see, who walks in the way of the winner, who stands in the way of sinners. This time you come along, you know what's going on, and you pause and you stand and you listen. And you take it in. And then the next day you come along and you pull up a seat. And you sit down. It's the way temptation works in, from the world in terms of our flesh. David, and I'm convinced David wrote this psalm, though it's not titled of David. I believe David wrote this psalm. He's saying, the blessed man doesn't do that. He doesn't do those things. But this is what he does. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is what the blessed man does. He doesn't walk, sit, stand with sinners. He delights in the law of God day and night. And I stop and ask you the question, anybody feeling convicted? Is there anybody here who can say, 
I never, never, never listen to what sinners have to say. I walk right by, or I may even stop and confront them with the Word of God. But I certainly don't stop and stand and listen, nor do I pull up the seat with sinners. No, I delight in the law of God every day, every night, imperfection all the time. The law of the Lord is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's to be more desired than gold, much fine gold. That's how I read the law of God and obey it. Is there anyone sitting here that can say that describes you? Imperfection. I see some looks on faces. Why did you put the imperfection there? Does that describe you sometimes at all? It does. It really does. No, it does. But woefully short of perfection. You see, are you the blessed man, woman, or child or not? This is what the blessed man is like. And the answer is, in and of yourselves, no. But the text is about the blessed man. Who is the blessed man in the text? He's the one we're going to read about in Psalm 2. The Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed man. One thing you have to recognize in terms of Jesus' own work We know his person. He's the God-man. But also in terms of his work. Yes, we focus on the cross, and rightly so. His death, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf. But don't neglect his active obedience. His life perfectly lived before God the Father. That's of absolute necessity if we're to be redeemed. He never once rolled his eyes at his mom. Now, I think away in the manger goes a little too far. No crying he makes. Well, of course, as a baby he cried, but not sinfully in terms of to say to mom, I have need. You see, he didn't inherit Adam's sin nature through the virgin birth. He walked in righteousness every day of his life. Never sinfully angry at his mother or his father. Or at others who most certainly probably mocked him. Never once was he ever disobedient. No. Psalm 1 describes Jesus to a T. Every moment of his life. And it's that righteousness, his active obedience, that's imputed to you in salvation. That is credited to your account. That's put on you like a cloak or like a robe, just as your sinful cloak and robe was put upon him on the cross when God poured out his wrath against your sin upon Jesus. That's the gospel. Jesus is the blessed man. And you're the blessed man. You're the blessed woman. 
You're the blessed child because by faith you're hid in him. You understand? By faith you're hid in him. And all the blessing that Jesus deserves is poured out upon you. What does justification mean? It doesn't simply mean that God declares you not guilty. That's not strong enough. Justification means God declares you righteous. You've never once broken his commandments. But you say, but I have. And you have. We all have. But Jesus never did. And it's his obedience that's credited to your account. This is what justification is. You are blessed because you're hid in him. In the blessed man. In the righteous man. And that's the gospel. And that's solely of grace. But I hope you can see that this psalm is not only about justification. There is the third use of the law. Okay, I'm hitting Christ. What a glorious thing this is. When God sees me, he sees his son's righteousness. He declares me righteous because of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of his work on my behalf. His wrath is assuaged because Jesus is the propitiation that has diverted that wrath from me. I receive blessing. This is wonderful and it's glorious. But there is the third use of the law. It's not God's intent to leave you the way he finds you. (laughs) To leave you the way you are. Salvation is more than justification. As central as that is to salvation. But salvation also includes sanctification. You're united with Christ and that's transformative. It changes you On the inner man, you're a new creature. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. When you're united with Christ by faith, because you're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, the old man in you is put to death. It's put to death. Now you might say, but it doesn't seem dead to me. (laughs) I see the old man rising up in me all the time, and that's true. But you're to render it dead and crucified with Christ and mortify the deeds of the flesh. And you do that by the same grace that saves you in justification. It's that same grace. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. That's what union with Christ is. He is transforming your desires. To love Christ and more and more to hate your sin. To mortify the deeds of the flesh, which is something we have to do every day. And progressive sanctification is, I'd like to describe it this way it's a journey, yes, and it's a journey into holiness, but sometimes it's a rocky road. At least mine is. One step forward, one step back. One step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. And yet there is progression because of union with Christ. And what happens is, is 
when we see how much we're loved by Christ and we love Him, then we begin to delight in His law and we begin to hate sin. And so when temptation comes, more and more we, we walk on by. We don't walk but listen and then stop and stand and listen. Stop and stand and listen more and pull up a chair. But we want to delight in Christ. We want to please God. And we continue walking. And then we realize as we get past, this is so much better for me than if I pulled up that chair back there. This is something the devil lies to you about. He tells you that God's law is a yoke around your neck. It's chains around your wrist. He's robbing you of your liberty. He's taking from you the power to do what you want to do when in fact the chains of bondage to sin fall off your wrist and you're liberated to be what God created you to be. And His law is always for your good rather than a yoke. It's something wonderful. So wonderful is more to be desired than gold, much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And the more you walk in Christ Jesus, the more this transformation actually is taking place in you. The more you understand this truth and the more you're walking into that state of looking like the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1, which means looking like Jesus, because that's what God's doing in you. He's conforming you to the image of His Son. And that's a beautiful thing to be. It's glorious. It is the devil's lie, his lie from the beginning, that God's law is a yoke and a burden. It sets you at liberty to be everything God created you to be, in particular, an intimate communion with Him. What does your sin do? It breaks your communion, and you know it. You know when you're unrepentant, you don't pray. Or when you do pray, you don't believe your prayers are going to go anywhere because you know that your sin is between you and God. When you come and you confess your sins to him, and you know that Jesus has borne the curse for every single one of them, it opens the floodgates of praise and prayer to him. This is what the blessed man looks like. Look at the stability of the blessed man. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. He's, it's like this tree that's planted by the river or by a stream. Oftentimes in the Psalter, even the, the figure of, 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 of the tree is something of strength, even, even symbolic of the king himself. But what does a tree need? It needs nutrients. It needs nutrients it gets from its roots, from the water. It's tapped into that source. The same thing is true of you. You cannot walk before God in your own strength. 
But you're not left to your own strength. You're united to Christ Jesus. Jesus uses a different figure. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remember? Same picture. Here it's a tree and roots that are tapped into the the source of water. And the water is the Holy Spirit himself. And that's who gives you the strength. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You're tapped into Christ Jesus. All of the strength and nutrients flow from him. It's through your clinging to him. So what's your job? Cling to him. That's your job. Run to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. And the strength flows. And you grow. And he prospers you. This is what the text is saying. This is what the blessed man looks like. But there are those that aren't the blessed man. There are those that are wicked. Look at the contrast. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Why? Because they have no root. They're dead. They exist. They're there. But when they're chopped up, what happens? It it blows away by the wind. There's no substance there. There's no life there because they're not united to Christ Jesus. But we are united to Christ Jesus. The wicked are not so, and the fruit of their lives is their wickedness, that is, their rebellion and their breaking of the commandments of God, their sin. And so he goes on to say, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. On that judgment day, the wicked will be judged by God in eternal hell. That's their end. But that's not the end of those who are blessed. Look at what he says. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows your way. Not just your destiny. He knows your way. He knows every day your way. He's here with you every day along the way. But the way of the wicked and its end, they will perish and that's eternal hell. And so the question is, Are you a tree? Are you chaff? Are you the blessed man, the righteous man, or woman, or child? Or are you the wicked man, woman, or child? Are you united with Christ or not? He is your only hope. But what a hope he is. What a hope he is. Listen to the psalm again as I read it. Listen in light of the exposition that you've just heard. Close your Bibles and listen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We find in this psalm that extols your law. 
Father, we thank you for Jesus, the blessed man, and for what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.